0: Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary.
1: This is Design Matters with Debbie Milman from designobserver.com. For 13 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this episode of the podcast, Debbie Millman talks with Tim Ferriss about depression and suicide, and about recent changes in his life. I think Tim of 12 months ago and
2: Tim of of right now are are two uh, very different people.
1: Here's Debbie Millman.
0: It may take a village to raise a child, But when the child is grown up, what then? Where do they turn for advice and counsel to make their way through jobs, relationships, life? Tim Ferriss says no one should go it alone. We all need mentors and he brings many to choose from in his brand new book, Tribe of Mentors, short life advice from the best in the world. Tim Ferriss is a four-time New York Times bestselling author and tech investor and host of the wildly popular podcast, The Tim Ferriss Show, which has been downloaded over 200 million times since its inception. He's here today on the other side of the mic, and I have lots to ask him about his new book, his most recent TED Talk, and life. Tim Ferriss, welcome back to Design Matters.
2: Thank you for having me. It's all downhill after the intro.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, no. The secret
2: to happiness, low expectations, my dear (laughs) listeners.
0: Well, congratulations on your spectacular year. Tools of Titans debuted at number one on the New York Times bestseller list, and I think I called that in our last podcast. You did. The
2: Nostradamus (laughs) of publishing had called it.
0: And your new TED Talk has been viewed At this moment, nearly four million times. Crazy. Isn't it extraordinary? It's been a really wild
2: 12 months.
0: Well, let's talk about your TED Talk first. Yes. You introduce your talk by showing a cheerful picture of you from 1999 and describe that it was taken when you were a senior in college after a dance practice when you were really, really happy. Then... In a startling turn of events, you state the following. I remember exactly where I was about a week and a half later. I was sitting in the back of my used minivan in a campus parking lot when I decided I was going to commit suicide. I went from deciding to full-blown planning very quickly, and I came this close to the edge of the precipice. It's the closest I've ever come, And the only reason I took my finger off the trigger was thanks to a few lucky coincidences. And after the fact, that's what scared me the most, the element of chance. So Tim, my God, what happened in the week between the dance recital and being in your minivan?
2: Well, I should take a step back and give a little bit of TED background okay. that people haven't heard, and then I will gladly answer that, but I'm going to tiptoe around it first. <laughs> I was going to do an entirely different TED Talk. And really? it was my first time yeah. on the TED main stage in the opening session, which is broadcast live to hundreds or thousands of movie theaters, and I had an entirely different talk, which I scrapped entirely about a week before because... The talk I'd created was, it was a good talk, but it was safe. And I felt it was a cop-out and that I had a moral obligation to talk about what I ended up talking about. Uh, And uh, word to those who might give TED Talks on really difficult subjects, you might want to give your uh, family or parents a heads-up about the subject matter, which I forgot to do, and then they went to see it at the movie theater. Nonetheless... Uh, it wasn't so much what happened in between the week of that dance practice, and then the decision. Let's call it seven days later. It was a confluence of many different things hitting me at once over perhaps a six-week period, and I had, for instance, suffered a really devastating relationship loss and had broken up with a girlfriend or been broken up with, more accurately. I had left Princeton for a year. If we wanted to dress it up, we could call it a sabbatical. But really what it was uh, was hitting pause because I was afraid I wasn't going to finish my senior thesis. There were a handful of other things, but suffice to say, at that time I didn't know that, although I would observed in certain ways, uh, manic depression is genetically predisposed in my family. Uh, to an almost absurd degree. It's kind of like Spinal Tap, like 1 to 10. It's an 11 when I looked at my, my genome and the interpretation recently. So I'm off campus. The class I was going to graduate with is graduating without me. My family had really supported me incredibly and was not wealthy. I mean, my parents never made more than 50 grand a year combined. And so in my head now, I go into this tailspin where I'm thinking... I'm a student at Princeton who's done well up to this point and I feel miserable. If I'm not happy now or can't figure out how to be happy, I'm never going to figure out how to be happy. So perhaps I'm better off and the world is better off without someone so incapable of sort of coping with reality. And of course that didn't lead anywhere terribly productive, but I started hitting the snooze button and sleeping in and so on and I recall the day before that minivan incident, I went to a Barnes & Noble, and I saw this book on a display table. And it was a, a, of the Cavorkian variety. It was a how-to book on uh, assisted suicide for loved ones. And I thought to myself, that's a sign. That's what I've been looking for. And oh uh, so I sat down. I always have my notebooks with me. And for the first time, this is going to sound really weird, but I was I was so excited and relieved because I was like, these are the details that I need. Like I was just thinking about this and, you know, maybe there's a way I can make it look like an accident. Maybe there's a way to – and and as soon as I went into planning mode, because I'm really good at planning, which is particular – can be particularly hazardous to your health in a situation like this – You know, I spec'd out all the scenarios. I had everything planned out. I was trying to figure out, like, who, if I needed someone to help me, could I get to help me, but not in a way that they would feel guilty, or it went on and on and on. And the only reason that stuff didn't happen was that, after reading that book, went into the bibliography and I was like, "Oh, cool. I need to do further research. If I'm going to do this, let me do it properly." Oh, Tim! I want to get an A plus in suicide, so let me go figure out the the, the absolute best way to do this uh, and to try to uh, absolve my you know, parents of any guilt that they might feel, which of course is ludicrous, but in my state of delusion, that that was the thinking. And I went to Firestone Library at Princeton, this incredibly gigantic library, to look for one of the books in the bibliography. It was already checked out by another student. <laughs> and I had forgotten to update my mailing address at the registrar. And the way the library notifies you when a book comes in, thank God, back in the pleistocene era, before <laughs> digital notifications, is via postcard. So they sent a postcard not to the apartment in which I was living, but to my parents' address. And my mom got this card saying, Timothy Ferris, this letter is to inform you that the book you requested, such and such, how to kill yourself, has arrived at Firestone Library. Please pick up and daggada daggadda whatever it was. And so my mom called, I got this call from my mom, and she was shaken up but holding it together and she asked me about it and I was fast enough on my feet that I tap danced and I said, oh, that you have nothing to worry about. So sorry that that caught you off guard. My friend goes to Rutgers. He doesn't have access to Firestone. He needed it for a blah, blah, blah research project, and that was for him. But what it did, just hearing my mom's voice, is it it snapped me out of it. And I realized, wow, I mean, this if I were to kill myself, even if I have no care for myself, even if I would really love to kill myself, I can't do it because it would be like taking... Ten times the pain I feel and imposing it on all the people I care most about. And that there was no magic trick, some sleight of hand that I could use to make my parents go, oh, no, terrible, tragic accident. But we're not to blame. Th- that trick doesn't exist. And um, here we are. So that's it. And so when I say lucky coincidence, I'm not exaggerating. <laughs>
0: but how did you... Recover from that particular bout of depression what made you feel that aside from hearing your mom and maybe it was just the The fact that you were hearing how much love your mom had for you in her voice, but
2: yeah Well, I I think there are a a few different questions that we could consider one is you know Why didn't you kill yourself and it was simply because that option had been removed from the table, right? It was no longer a Defensible plan Right not for me. I didn't care about myself, but for other people Then there's the question of how did you regain some semblance of direction and optimism, perhaps. And there are a number of answers. Number number one, and this is not something that I've, I've talked too much about, is that I realized it's very difficult sometimes to think your way out of things you didn't logically think your way into, And in those cases, to get out of my head, getting into my body is the best solution. So I actually doubled and tripled down on physical training. And I made sure that at least that provided some structure. I think that the scaffolding of some type of daily or weekly routine within which you are held accountable or feel guilty for abandoning other people is a, a very useful lifeline so i ended up training at a boxing gym uh, in trenton which was really rough i was the only person there not on work release <laughs> and so it was mostly just paying someone to allow me to go to a gym where i would just get beaten up but nonetheless uh i was i was interested in fight sports and that was not masochism i wasn't like looking for pain i was just a terrible boxer <laughs> uh but the camaraderie and uh, of that experience, and also, quite frankly, seeing how down on their luck yet optimistic many of the people in the gym were, if I think about it. These were, I mean, all men, um, in really rough transitionary periods in their lives. I mean, many of them were below the poverty line. Some of them felt they needed to fight to get to a professional level for any hope of getting out of A, B, and C situation. And uh, that, that also helped to put things in perspective. Uh, the, the other piece was some early embryonic version of this exercise that I still do probably once a month or once a quarter call, that I call fear setting. So if you want to get into that, we can certainly get into that because it is very practical, tactical.
0: First of all, I want to say that I think there's some really interesting symmetry that you rewrote your TED Talk the night before the talk about an experience that was triggered by you having to rewrite your thesis. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Yeah, it'd make a pretty good uh, sort of parallel story structure for some...
0: uh Yeah. Some creative (laughs) mind, right? Um but in in the talk, before you before you talk about how you are able to cope with depressions, you reveal that most people have between six to ten major depressive episodes in their lives. And I didn't realize that this was so common.
2: Yeah, I wanted to get my facts as right as I could if I'm gonna cite any type of statistic and uh, that that range of, of number of episodes kept coming up. Yeah.
0: That's just incredible. You also talk about how you have suffered from 50-plus <laughs> depressed episodes in your life, yeah. and you've learned a lot from them. What have you learned from those episodes?
2: Well, I should say I've learned a lot from my experiments with different approaches to resolving those episodes. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Like, the episodes... <laughs> I mean, they're <laughs> depressive episodes. They suck. They're How terrible. How long do they
0: usually last? Uh,
2: the So, as I've become better at coping or m- either, for instance, I mean, mitigating the onset of, that's one piece.
0: And what you, are those?
2: I think it's very individual, but for me. Uh, for me, it would be... Difficult to explain physical lethargy. Just feeling listless, feeling tired is, is one. Uh, I think that uh, other behavioral triggers include skipping breakfast for too many days in a row and causing just biochemical wonkiness where I might have extended low blood sugar and then compensate by taking caffeine and then I end up over-caffeinating which feeds into anxiety and agitation and, uh-oh, here we go, not a good cocktail. So th- those are a few. Uh, I would say if I feel unfairly attacked or victimized in some way, uh, and it could be the smallest thing, it could be in this day and age, right? It could be someone who knows nothing about anything, who... Implies that I'm somehow discriminatory in some way, or whatever. Right? It's the internet. Like that's the neighborhood you choose to walk through. And I just I get so righteously indignant and upset about that, but I simultaneously recognize the futility of <laughs> trying. <laughs> yeah,
0: it makes to you feel helpless.
2: Wrestle a pig in the mud. It's just not going to be a productive use of time. And I have a lot of history and past trauma and so on that I think feeds into this. But if I allow myself to be exposed to that too often, it's also a trigger to some chronic states that are really uh, unhealthy. And you're seeing that a lot now, uh, quite frankly, in people who might normally view themselves as fairly put together. I have a number of friends, we don't need to digress down this path, but a number of friends who are almost you know, giving themselves pre- and post-traumatic stress disorder by overexposing themselves to sort of the divisive aggression online. I mean, I have a number of friends who are normally, like two years ago, very calm, very put together, who are so hair trigger about everything now because they have trained themselves or conditioned themselves to be that way by subjecting themselves to certain environments. So conversely, I try to take the advice of a good friend of mine, Naval Ravikant, Brilliant, brilliant man, incredible investor and entrepreneur, and, and really soulful, deep-thinking guy. And uh, he said to me once, you know, rule number one of conflict resolution is don't spend a lot of time around people who are constantly in conflict. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I will frequently subtract people from my life. I, I've been very, very proactive about curating the people around me, not necessarily for my self-gain or business purposes, nothing, but for purely for psychological health.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: So, so those, those are a few things. But the physical lethargy is probably the biggest cue.
0: When you're experiencing a depressive episode, how do you calibrate your internal life and your external life? So for example, I went through a particularly uh, difficult, depressive time from September to February 2015-16. Um, and I remember meeting somebody on the street that I hadn't seen in a long time, and uh she asked me how I was, and I said, terrible, and I think I started crying. And she said, oh, my God, you seem fine on Facebook. And I was like, everybody's fine on Facebook. Um, but it was it was such a—
2: Everybody's like Tom Brady and Giselle on Facebook.
0: Right? So how did you—I mean, it was very clear to me at that point that I was living sort of two lives, this internal life that maybe my friends and closest uh, comrades sort of knew about, and then the rest of the world, which thought everything was fine.
2: I haven't thought much about it, okay. <laughs> uh, honestly, but I will say that I have learned that if I think I'm slipping into a depressive period, one of the most important things to do is to schedule in advance group activities with friends because the very self-defeating tendency that I have is to go into isolation. Yeah, I don't want to subject anybody to this. This is bullshit. I know what it is. I'll sort it out myself, and that is not the right instinct. So as soon as I'm like, mm, looks like I'm getting into some funky period, and just in general I've tried to do this, is to, for instance, have at least one group dinner with two, three, four friends per week. Uh, I do now, these days, enjoy cooking. So all the, all the better if I can do something that requires my attention lest I chop off some fingers. <laughs> because then... <laughs> The focus on sort of present state awareness will, will help me to not perseverate on whatever silly loop happens to be replaying in my head. And as a preventative measure, I do think that uh, daily AM, first thing in the morning, meditative practice, 10 to 20 minutes, is very, very, very helpful. And meditation needs a rebrand. Uh, the word is so repellent to so many people, <laughs> and it was to me for decades. But really, what the way that I envision it or the way I view it is that you are, depending on the type uh, or the style that you use, and that could be transcendental meditation, it could be Vipassana or Insight, uh, it could be using an app like Headspace, which I think is a great place for many people to start for, say, 10 minutes a day for 10 days the the primary skill i view that you're not just learning but practicing or developing like you might go to the gym to prepare for a sport is observing your thoughts without being tumbled by them and you're you might be sitting on the couch and it's like all right you're thinking about somebody who cut you off in traffic the day before or a coworker sent a snarky email Or you're just like sitting there thinking about whatever the porn you saw two days ago. And you're like, why am I thinking about this for 18 out of 20 minutes? Really? It's good porn. It's good porn. (laughs) There's a place for it. But the point being, you observe it and you're like, instead of reacting immediately to whatever that thought is, you almost act like a viewer in a movie theater. And you go, huh, interesting choice, director. Hmm. And you just watch it. And then, like a cloud, it slowly morphs into something else. And you don't have to push it away. You don't have to hate yourself because of it. You don't have to get angry. And by practicing that, then you go out into the far messier real world. And in between, say, a an event, a trigger, a stimulus, right? Somebody saying something really rude at Starbucks. It doesn't matter what it is. Instead of immediately reacting, you have a tiny gap that you learn to widen where you say, pause, millisecond or two. Now I choose my response. And that helps to catch a lot of the downward spirals before they become a spiral.
0: Yeah, I actually find that if I'm in a spiral, one thing that's helped in getting older is because they've been somewhat repetitive over the course of my life. I no longer feel that I'm going to have one that lasts for the rest of my life. You know, I know right, that they're, right. they're, they're they're episodic and yeah. there's some comfort in just sort of letting it play out and knowing that I will recover.
2: Yeah, and I uh, you know I recently did a um, Ten day silent meditation retreat. I heard about which that. I do not recommend for everybody. Yeah, was, Chase was,
0: Jarvis told me you did that, and I was I was just astounded.
2: Yeah, it was one of the one of the harder things I've ever done. Uh, no and, words for ten days. Not only no speaking, uh, but no reading, no writing, no music.
0: No eye contact, right? Uh,
2: you're allowed to make eye contact, but most people choose not to. So you have nowhere to run, and hide.
0: What did you learn about yourself?
2: <sighs> that can be. Uh, Round 17 on the podcast. Okay. but <laughs> well, uh, I will say that whatever you think you have locked away and compartmentalized, whatever damage you've received that you feel like you have safely exiled to a place where it will never return, surprise, surprise. Hello. <laughs> oh, it's right there waiting for you. And uh, you, you, you become very unlayered in a process like that. And uh, you end up dealing with everything. So... The reason I brought it up, though, is to say when you first start observing your thoughts, at first you get really annoyed at your silly thoughts that are ricocheting inside your head. And then maybe you get a little curious, and then you just get amused. right? And you, And sometimes you cycle through those, and you can certainly revert back to being really annoyed about thinking about your calendar or something for like <laughs> 19 minutes out of a 20 minute meditation. Uh, and, it, and for those people who try it, 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 just for what it's worth, I mean, I've been doing this very regularly for a number of years now. And uh, it still takes me 95% of the time in a given meditation, just to wait for all the snow in the snow globe to drop so I can, like, get a glimpse of Santa Claus. And then I'm like, oh, cool. Santa, <laughs> peace. I feel pretty good. And then chime, meditation over. And that's okay. Like, that's a successful session because the practice is getting better at watching the mud settle. And the reason that I should I should mention, I I felt so compelled to talk about this in the TED environment and to discuss it is that You mentioned Facebook and the selective posturing that we all do in a way. It's easy to look at Facebook or to see people you perceive to be superheroes on the cover of magazines and to think that they've got it all figured out and uh, that they never get depressed, that they never feel anxious, and that you are uniquely flawed in some terrible way, and you're just a broken toy, never to be fixed. (laughs) Whereas in fact, if we just look at, for instance, I mean, the 130 people in Tribe of Mentors or in Tools of Titans, uh, I would say, and of course I'm not gonna name names, but the, the vast majority have battled incredible demons and have suffered horrible things in various ways. And it's par for the course. And you said, what did I learn at the silent retreat? I mean, one thing, I'm not sure if learn is the right word, but one way that I was changed in a sense, at least for a 10-day period afterwards, and they told us on the last day, you think the retreat is over, it's actually half over. So it's going to take you probably 10 days to get back to whatever baseline you think you had. (laughs) And you're really sensitive when you come out of it. you think think about all of the inputs that have been removed, right? You can't even use scented shampoo or anything. There are no scents allowed. It's it's like you're so permeable when you come out of it. And when I walked around, I remember going to a grocery store the day afterwards.
0: It must have been like you were tripping. Yeah.
2: And one of the staff members from the retreat center said, do you want me to go in and get you I was just getting some sparkling water, which I hadn't also had in 10 days, and it, like, made me gag and almost, like, spew everywhere, because, like, my body just wasn't used to it. Uh, And I said, no, I'm fine. I'm good. I I can handle it. And I walked in, and it was so overwhelming, but what I also noticed is that because I had been inside my own head for 10 days straight, I was suddenly much more interested in everyone else. And I wasn't thinking about my usual loops, and I was looking at people, and I just saw so much pain and anguish in almost everyone. Like, you could see it, they're holding it together, but like, fuck, what's going on underneath the surface there? Suffice to say, if you think you're uniquely fucked up and flawed, you're not. You are not. At all. And... What I found in these depressive periods is the most dangerous mental frame that I get into is saying something like that to myself, right? Like, "Wow, like you're really fucked," and uh, you know, not only are you depressed, but you're getting angry that you're depressed. Right. That just makes you more ashamed. Yeah. Then that just makes you more. It becomes this almost like tragically comic. like, 15-person, one-man act in my head. And uh, contending with that and getting better at preventing it and shortening the duration. You asked about duration. I mean, I've had episodes back in the day that were, I mean, geez, six months, a year? Long. Uh, These days, I I still expect it to come visit, uh, but it's, it's generally much shorter in duration because I have better coping tools. I have better strategies now. And particularly, again, making myself accountable to other people. Like, oh, shit, okay, I'm feeling a little bit of turbulence in the force. Let me schedule, like, two or three, whatever, tennis lessons a week with someone, and then a dinner, and then a this, and then a this. And I mentioned the caffeine being an issue. Booze. I like my booze, but that can become a very unhelpful force uh, if you start to really self-medicate with that. Uh, So the physical training... In a way offsets that, if that makes sense, because I'm doing I'm working out so hard to prevent the onset. I don't feel like drinking a lot because I know oh geez I got to wake up at eight in the morning tomorrow to do an hour and a half of fill in the blank exercise. Yeah, no, I'm good with one class. Uh, so so those those are a few thoughts, uh, but I I do think I mean if we're also going to look at some of the silver lining, or if you look at a book like uh, Daily Rituals, for instance. Uh, this, is, this is really common among people who strive to do anything creative. It's, I mean, it's the defo- it seems like the default. Well, if almost. you have
0: to be sensitive to perceive the world in a creative, artistic way, why wouldn't you experience sensitivities that are sad?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Or, I mean, if you're in the mode of exploring the edges right. and the extremes it makes sense that you will experience or inflict <laughs> those on yourself. And it's not to romanticize it. I mean, if you could tell me, hey, I can wave a magic wand and you can do all the creative stuff that you do and it's you're just going to be like a smiling Buddha all the time instead, I'd be like, yeah, I'll take that pill. Yeah? Sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but here we are. I think
0: we should start a new website called Shame Book. And everybody signs up, and instead of posting all the great things that happen in their lives, they post when they're scared and nervous and angry at themselves. Here's a photo of me and my tidy
2: whities after eating an entire box of (laughs) Ho-Hos.
0: Exactly. The whole world could join in on the the shame spiral together. Oh, God. Let's talk about the tool. The tool. Your TED Talk focuses on a tool that completely changed your life in 2004. And you say you found it because of two things: a very close friend, a young man your age, unexpectedly died of pancreatic cancer, and your then girlfriend, who you thought you were going to marry, left you. But I, I was sort of interested the words that you used in the talk that the tool found you.
2: Yes, this this exercise found me slash I found it slash Option C that I can't even. You think just of bumped right
0: into now. each other in the yeah.
2: Yeah, and... Uh, Quantum
0: mechanics of the universe. Yeah,
2: you know, I'm going to redirect and, and just talk about the <laughs> the, ex- tool. the exercise, which <laughs> is fear setting.
0: So what is fear setting, fear setting and, and how do we do it?
2: Yeah, uh, I'll walk right through it. It's It's very straightforward. So fear setting is called fear setting because we've all heard that you can't accomplish your goals unless they are specific. This is true, I think. You need a really clear target. If you, you have a scope and there's a target, crosshairs has to be in focus. If you want to overcome your fears, they also have to be really specific. So that's the point of this exercise, and it's real simple. If you take a piece of paper, 8.5 by 11, whatever, right, journal, and you turn it lengthwise, so you're looking at it kind of landscape view, and you create three columns, and then at the very top of the paper... You write, what if I dot, 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 and the dot, dot, dot is whatever you're considering doing that you've either been pushing off or that's causing you anxiety. What if I quit my job? What if I started this company? What if I asked so-and-so to marry me? What if I ended this five-year relationship? Oh, God, I've done that. Not easy. Uh, What if I took my first vacation in 10 years?
0: Mm, That was one of your fears.
2: That was one of mine. That That was the one that I used for the illustration. So what you do. What if I took a four-week vacation, eight-week vacation? What if I, whatever. And then in the first column, you have define. And you're going to write down at least 15, let's say, very specific bad things that could happen. And they need to be specific. That's the whole point. So, well, I'll miss some type of notification from the IRS and all out of my business. And it'll be some type of legal complication and I'll get sued and game over. All right, that's one thing. So point.
0: basically it's the, the, the results are like end up homeless in the street.
2: Uh, well, you, you you want to follow it through. right? So, so, so <laughs> That's that, always mine. So, so that would be one. Uh, number two might be something like my friends will think I'm crazy and when I come back, I'll be completely out of the social loop and even if I figure it out, blah, blah, blah. Right. Uh, or for me, right. I'll get to London. It's going to be rainy and dark and I'll spin into a depression. And then I will take a four week vacation in quotation marks, get nothing done, come back. And I will have hurt my business and got nothing done. All right. So let's call them one, come up with like 15 of those at least. And it takes some time. This is worth at least an hour. Believe me, every time I've done this at at critical junctures in my life, it has fundamentally changed my life and helped me to choose, I think, the right fork. All right, next column. So we went through define. The next is prevent. So for each of those, each of those bullets you've come up with, what could you do to prevent them or decrease the likelihood of them happening? Even 1%. All right, well, I could change my mailing address for the IRS stuff to a UPS store. And then I could pay them to scan all the mail and email it to me. This is back in the day, right? There are now services that do this for you. Uh, Okay, well, that should actually do it. All right, for the Depression, well, I could potentially change the location. Maybe I go to Spain instead. Or maybe I go somewhere in the U.S. that's sunny. And that's page two. That is column two on the column same page. Two. Oh,
0: yep. column two on the same page. It
2: could be a different page. Okay. But I like to kind of have it on one page.
0: I like to think. because you, like pro- to you visualize.
2: You, yeah, you progressively can see how ludicrous your fears are when you start to put them under a microscope. Uh, and Ludicrous is a strong word. But uh, so defeatable, reversible. And that's the third column. So we have define, prevent, and then you have repair. And in the last column, it's like, all right, hey. Shit happens. So let's say you do all your fancy defensive preemptive work, and this happens regardless, right? What do you do? And, or what could you do to either get back on your feet temporarily or reverse the damage? Again, even one not talking about 100%, right? Now you don't feel hopeless and helpless. You actually have an option. And then so on and so forth down the list. So So that's the uh,
0: Define, Prevent, Repair page. And that's the first page.
2: Yeah, that's the first and and one of the the, the most important. The second page is what would be the benefits of an attempt or a partial win? Uh, It's very easy to view failure and success in binary terms, but the results are seldom binary. And as James Cameron would say, and I'm paraphrasing, but if if you're if you aim high enough, you will fail above everyone else's success. Hmm. right And uh, so, for instance, the vacation, the starting of a business. So what are the benefits of an attempt or a partial win? Well, what are the skills or relationships you might develop that could transcend that project or decision and apply to other things in your life later? Because those snowball in a really beneficial way, right? Uh, how would it change? even if it failed, but you tried it and you were able to recover from it, right? Like you start a business, doesn't work out. How does that change your conception of what is possible, right? Uh, Even if you try it, doesn't work, but you learn a bunch, you develop a bunch of new relationships, and then you have to take a temporary bartending job to get back on your feet, well, hey, you're alive. You can get back and back.
0: And I think it's important to be able to Test yourself to know that you can rely on yourself.
2: Yeah, and, it, and uh, you might it give you confidence in your own ability to improvise with uncertainty? This is a big one. A lot of people will go to MBA programs or get law degrees or graduate school or follow a predictable career path. And if they don't dabble in the sandbox that is something with uncertainty, Uh, they can very often become or feel paralyzed because they haven't conditioned themselves. It's like getting a suntan. I mean, it's a progressive conditioning. Uh, So there's that. Maybe you just become more comfortable with uncertainty. That is a huge gift that you can give yourself. Uh, And the fact of the matter is, for instance, I mean, my first few business ventures failed abysmally, I mean, horribly in a financial capacity, but the skills and relationships and so on still serve me to this day, right? So, so the, the, the question, what are the benefits of an, of an attempt or a partial win is really important so that your bar for worthwhile isn't, I'm Babe Ruth and I'm the home run king. That's something that I've seen myself and other people do as a way to rationalize Staying the course, whatever the status quo is. Well,
0: yeah. you talk about how important it is to consider what the atrocious cost of the status quo is, yeah. And and that is something that I think is really beneficial in this yeah. exercise. Yeah,
2: and that's that's page three, last page. So, what is the cost of inaction? Because we very often look at the potential benefits of winning, right, and then the the the, the things that could go wrong if we try to change something. But we don't consider the sometimes atrocious costs of just continuing to do what you're doing. So w- what are the costs, physical, emotional, financial, psychological, to not just you, but the people around you and the people you love six months from now, 12 months from now, three years from now? Five years from now, what does that look like? In many cases, it's a fucking disaster. But unless you put it on paper, it's this black cloud phantasm that just floats around in your head in a very unproductive way. But once you put it on paper, and then you can see it, and it's like, wow, all right. (laughs) Even if the answer to... The first two pages was like, wow, this still sh- seems like a shitty bet. Once you go through the cost of inaction, you're like, actually, the cost of inaction, almost guaranteed cost of inaction, is 10 times worse than doing anything else. So I, so I have to do something. I have to change something. And that's the exercise.
0: I want to talk about your new book tribe of mentors what made you decide to write a new 600 plus page (laughs) book you know every one of
2: these the 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 genesis stories of these books have some commonalities Uh, the first is that I almost always write books that I can't find myself because I find writing really difficult and really usually very painful but if I can't find the book that I need, I'm too impatient or fill in the blank adjective to not then reach out to experts and try to just put it together.
0: Because well, this isn't just reaching out to a few experts. I think this yeah. is 130 100, experts?
2: 130 across every possible <laughs> domain. And I'm, so
0: the tribe of mentors is 130 people that you have reached out to understanding that they were people that could help other people in a vast array right. of
2: topics. Right. And it, it was a, a dream list uh, because the advice that I received when I was just getting started and that I give that I perhaps have found most valuable is you are the average of the five people you associate with most. And I wanted to give people a choose-your-own-adventure kind of buffet Of people they could choose from. Uh, And all of them are incredible uh, and, and range from, say, Kelly Slater, the most decorated surfer of all time, to, you know, Dara Torres, whatever, she has 23 medals in the Olympics or something like that, to David Lynch.
0: Well, you start the introduction with the revelation that you were about to become 40. Yes. And you had no plans for after becoming 40. Right.
2: So, you know... Good news, bad news, Tim doesn't off himself. Well, Tim never thought he was going to make it to 40. And, uh, and then I arrive at 40, which for me wasn't actually a big deal. Maybe I'll have, like, delayed onset panic, but I don't think so. Uh, I, I feel like the 40s are actually going to be a really, like, a good ride for me, knock on wood. Uh, but I had a number of friends unexpectedly die in a really concentrated fashion, I mean, within a 12-month period. And in fact, one of the mentors in the book, Terry Lachlan, uh, very sadly passed away a few weeks ago, also from pancreatic cancer. Good God. It struck me that 40 symbolically could serve as a, a good excuse or reason just to hit pause and really reassess and ask a lot of big questions and refine what I want to say no to and get better at saying no and getting... Perhaps better at saying yes to the very few things that I would have to define as most important to me. And rather than try to figure it all out on my own, unnecessarily labor-intensive habit in the past, I said, well, after doing the podcast and meeting all these various people, why don't I just reach out to the people I thought were demigods when I was in high school or college and put together this eclectic dream list and ask them all these questions that I'm struggling with.
0: In one question, you asked whether your goals were your own or simply what you thought you should want. So yeah. what did you discover in that investigation about your goals? Were they yours or or were they more no, of an a, obligation? No, a, a lot
2: of them were not mine. Uh, and I was unclear on what I wanted, so I looked at how people were competing and tried to find games where I could win. And wow. I spent most of my life until very recently uh, to put it mildly, having a very low regard for myself. I mean, I didn't, did not care for myself. I would say hate my, hated myself and felt anger towards myself as a primary state. And
0: uh, and that breaks my heart. I have to say.
2: Yeah, but, but that that's what it was. Yeah. And what I decided to do in lieu of loving myself, which seemed super self indulgent, ridiculous, uh, was to develop myself in, into a sharp instrument of competition. So mm-hmm. It's just like, okay, now like I chose many goals and arbitrary financial targets and worlds to explore because I thought I could go harder than anyone else, take more than anyone else, and win.
0: And what have you discovered in the process?
2: Number one is uh, to seek goals and paths that excite and energize you, not just paths that give you some type of temporary relief. Number two is if everyone is competing for something or claims to be striving for something, it's probably very poorly defined and may mean, in fact, that the ladder you're climbing is leaning against the wrong wall. Mm -hmm. So who gives a shit if you get to the top of that ladder? (laughs) And uh, last, as it relates to the goal, the goal selection, I would say before you idolize someone or emulate their path, look at their life as holistically as possible. And look, I have my shitty moments. I have my off days. But uh, I would say I have realized for myself that even if, this is, this is going to sound weird, but I do think that there are probably a fair number of people listening who will get this. <laughs> even if you have no regard for yourself... Like, you're like, yeah, alive, dead, whatever. Like, we're all going to go to dust anyway. If you want other people you care for to feel fully loved, you actually have to learn how to love yourself in some capacity.
0: So how did you do it, Tim? How did you get to a place where you aren't loathing yourself?
2: This is a work in progress. But I, I will tell you... uh I think Tim of twelve months ago and Tim, Tim of right now are are two uh, very different people, and in, in a good way. I hope uh, we'll see.
0: I want to ask you if you'll read two things for me. The first thing I think would be helpful for our listeners is to really get a sense of not just the mentors that you have in the book. You've already shared uh, quite a few of the names of the people that you've enlisted to answer the questions. But what the questions are, because you yourself state the older you get, the more time you spend on crafting better questions. And you asked... All of the contributors, the same questions. They didn't have to answer them all, but there were 11 questions you asked. And I think that this is, in many ways, the best way for our listeners to really be able to understand the type of content that's in this book.
2: Oh, sure. So the first one is, what is the book or books you've given most as a gift and why? Or what are one to three books that have greatly influenced your life? And either of these is a better question than what are your favorite books, Uh, because the the people I'm asking this question of have read hundreds of thousands of books. And uh, what are your favorite books? Number one is going to lead them to probably just pull something out of the hat that they read in the last year or two. Second, anyone who's really well known is going to hesitate to answer what is your favorite book, because they're going to be afraid of getting quoted and then having it in Wikipedia forever. And then Looking at it for the rest of their life and saying, God, if I'd only had five minutes to think about it, I wouldn't have given that stupid answer. (laughs) So make it easy. Make it low risk. What is the book or books you've given the most as a gift and why is the key? Because they almost always have one to three go-to books. Okay. So the next one is what purchase of $100 or less has most positively impacted your life in the last six months? Next question. This and when people have asked me, for instance, if you had to choose one of these, and some people did, they're like, "Ah, I, you know, I can't, I can't even answer three or four of these. What's one that you want me to answer?" It would be this one. How has a failure or a parent failure set you up for later success? Do you have a quote favorite failure end quote of yours? Now, the next question is one of my reader and listener favorites, but you cannot open with this. And I know that because I've tested it and people just bail. If you could have a giant billboard anywhere with anything on it, metaphorically speaking, getting a message out to millions or billions of people, what would it say and why? And a lot of these parenthetical bits are important because A, they buy the person time, and B, uh, they de-risk the question. All right, next one. What is one of the best or most worthwhile investments you've ever made? And that could be time, could be money, could be energy. Another thing that I do for for those who might be interviewing people, and by the way, you're always interviewing people, uh, is I provide sample answers. And that's super, super key for two reasons. One, if they're busy, muckety-muck person and they're just like, ah, Tim Ferriss, this kid again, what does he want? All right, I'm going to give him a two-word answer. And then I'm like, oh, by the way, sample answer from equally impressive Muckety Muck, who gave me three awesome paragraphs. They're like, fuck, which is good. And B, uh, for for related reasons, it's social proof. They're like, okay, all right, this is a real thing. Next, what is an unusual habit or an absurd thing that you love? Uh, this 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 is a fun one. And what this also does is firmly establishes that everybody is completely crazy. <laughs> and uh, normal people are just crazy people you don't know well enough yet. <laughs> right? um, next, in the last five years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your light? If I had to choose two questions from this, this would probably be the second. All right, next. What advice would you give a smart, driven college student about to enter the so-called real world? What advice should they ignore? The ignore one... Is important because what you say no to the conventional wisdom that is actually very destructive that you should avoid is often what determines what you can do and the advice you can follow next similar what are bad recommendations you hear in your professional area of expertise next in the last five years what have you become better at saying no to and then the follow-up on that was what tips or recommendations would you have what has helped you recently to get better at saying no and the last one is when you feel overwhelmed or unfocused or have lost your focus temporarily, what do you do? Right? Because it doesn't matter what your grand ambitions are and how incredible your plan is if you end up in some corner of darkness and can't get yourself out. So those are the questions. And uh, I expected to get really short, (sighs) politely... Kurt Answers, and man, oh man, did I get some awesome answers. You did. 600
0: plus pages from, as you have stated, some of the best in the world, answering really wholeheartedly with great detail and great humility these, these questions.
2: Now, not everyone said sure, I want to be in the book. Uh, actually,
0: there were a couple of people that said no, and you included their no responses. Yeah, so
2: if you want to talk about...
0: Let's talk you, about you know, one. Like, how can
2: one. I... If we were to fear set this, right? All right. So if I'm... And I, if I actually did do this. Like, well, what if I reach out and I get rejected by all these people and I want to develop a relationship with them, but now I've blown it and... Ah, you know. All right. Internal bullet ricochet. Let's put it on paper. Okay, well, what could I do? And I got... I started getting rejections, and I was like, oh, oh, poor me, Eeyore, oh, and then I said, wait a second, wait a minute, wait, wait, there's there's actually an idea here for how I might repair this, and uh, it was in response to Wendy McNaughton, incredible illustrator, also just hilarious, awesome woman, and- um, She
0: wrote you quite a, a she, witty letter, which you printed. She,
2: Yes. So she sent me a fantastic rejection letter that was so thoughtful. And so I read it and then I, I said, OK, no problem. I totally understand. And then I read it again. I was like, wait a minute. I should put this in the book because one, the, because one of the questions is about how do you say no? And she just said no. And it's great. Right. So,
0: so read that for us.
2: Hi, Tim. Gah. OK. I've been battling with this. And here's the deal. After five intense years of creative output and promotion, interviews about personal journeys and where ideas come from, after years of wrapping up one project one day and jumping right into promoting another the next, dot, 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 I'm taking a step back. I recently maxed out pretty hard, and for the benefit of my work, i got to take a break. Over the past month, I've canceled contracts and said no to new projects and interviews. I've started creating space to explore and doodle again, to sit and do nothing, to wander and waste a day, and for the first time in five years... I'm finally in a place where there is no due date tied to every drawing, no deadline for ideas, and it feels really right. So, while I really want to do this with you, I respect you and your work and I'm honored that you'd ask me to participate, and as capital S stupid as it is for me professionally not to do it, I'm going to have to say thank you, but I got to pass. I'm simply not in a place to talk about myself or my work right now, crazy for a highly verbal only child to say. Hopefully we get a chance to talk somewhere down the line. I promise any thoughts I'll have for you then will be far more insightful than anything I can share with you right now. I hope the space created by my absence is filled by one of the brilliant people I suggested in my previous email. And really, thank you so much for your interest. I'll be kicking myself when the book comes out. Wendy McNaughton. That, ladies and gentlemen, is how a professional artist gives a good decline. And so I wanted to include that. And there are a few others in Neil Stevenson, the science fiction writer. And his, his decline is, is perfect, Neil. You know, he starts talking about like a five-headed hydra in his rejection letter. I'm <laughs> yes. like, thank you. I love this.
0: That's when you know somebody's a good writer, when yeah. they can bring even a rejection letter to life in a way that no one else yeah, can.
2: and to why and, and to do it in a way also that is very clear. There's no ambiguity. It's not, I really can't do this, but maybe if you ping me next week. There's none of that. It's very clearly a rejection, but it's handled so deftly that I end up liking her more than before I received it.
0: The thing that I like so much about the book is that there are so many perspectives. And you even talk about this in the introduction. Not every answer is going to be for everyone, but there's so much variety. And it shows the myriad ways that humans engage and create and are frustrated and combat fear. And it's just a really remarkable book. And I really want to thank you for writing it. Thank the you. last question I have for you is about my absolute favorite entrant, one of the mentors in Tribe of Mentors. And it's Jersey Gregorek, yes. who is the winner of four world weightlifting championships, the co-founder of UCLA's weightlifting program and the acclaimed Happy Body program, and is a published, highly regarded poet. Yes. And I got very excited when you said that you've been reading poetry now. So in response to that final question, question 11, when you feel overwhelmed or unfocused, what do you do? He responded that he has 11 go-to poems that he reads whenever he is feeling depressed and states that usually two poems are enough to make me feel better and restore love in my heart. And I went to read them all and I fell especially in love with the poem Eating Alone by Lee Young Lee and I was wondering if you would consider reading it for our listeners now.
2: I am happy to read it. I am nervous about reading it. Uh, and as a, as a delay tactic, I am going to read it. Okay, but okay. I want to give a little bit of background on Jersey because this guy is awesome and awesomely hilarious. So he came to the U.S. as a political refugee from Poland after suffering all sorts of horrible things. His mentor was actually kidnapped and killed a pastor by the government, and ended up in L.A. with his wife with no money, sleeping on floors, and has, they've created an incredible life for themselves. His wife also, by the way, has five world records. So that, that's Jersey. The poem is Eating Alone, poem picked by Jersey Gregorick, written by Lee Young Lee. I've pulled the last of the year's young onions. The garden is bare now. The ground is cold, brown, and old. What is left of the day flames in the maples at the corner of my eye. I turn, Cardinal vanishes. By the cellar door, I wash the onions, then drink from the icy metal spigot. Once, years back, I walked beside my father among the windfall pears. I can't recall our words. We may have strolled in silence, but I still see him bend that way, left hand braced on knee, creaky, to lift and hold to my eye a rotten pear. In it? A hornet spun crazily, glazed in slow, glistening juice. It was my father I saw this morning, waving to me from the trees. I almost called to him, until I came close enough to see the shovel, leaning where I had left it in the flickering deep green shade. White rice steaming, almost done. Sweet green peas fried in onions. Shrimp braised in sesame oil and garlic. And my own loneliness... What more could I, a
0: young man, want? Tim Ferriss, reading poetry on Design Matters. What more (laughs) could I want? Tim Ferriss, thank you so much for coming back to Design Matters, and thank you for your warmth and your generosity and your wonderful spirit. Tim Ferriss' new book is called Tribe of Mentors, Short Life Advice from the Best in the World. To find out more about Tim Ferriss, go to his website, TimFerris.com and listen to his amazing podcast, The Tim Ferriss Show.
2: And I want to add some words before we cut out. Okay. If that's okay. Sure. Because, Debbie, you're such a kind soul, I want to give you some credit for doing really important work because I'm not sure you always give yourself that credit. And your time on my podcast, your ability to pull out raw... Vulnerable stories from people on this show is a real service, and I've had hundreds and thousands of people approach me because of your work to talk about it. So thank you.
0: Thank you, Tim. Thank you. I, I might have mentioned on our last podcast the Ferris effect, which is palpable and phenomenal and um, you've done the same for me and more. And um, thank you for sharing and, and being here with me. This is the 13th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
1: For more information about Design Matters or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to millman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our new Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash debbie dash Milman. That's d.rip slash Debbie dash Millman. And if you want others to know about this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes store and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store or wherever you get your podcasts.